As an educator, are you designing experiences that cultivate social and emotional learning? In your classroom and school communities, you can develop social and emotional learning through an environment where students feel safe, welcomed, cared for, and able to take risks. Hapara Highlights and Hapara Filter are two tools that help you create a safe, supportive environment while building student agency. To learn more about establishing a culture of social and emotional learning with Hapara tools, visit hapara.com sel. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and the managing editor at Ed Surge. We are always interested in innovative education models here at the Ed Surge podcast. And this week, we're looking at a new effort that's trying to bring a fresh approach to gifted education. It's one that hopes to one day be an option for kids through the public system, through something like a charter model. But it's one that doesn't take place in a school building. Instead, it's something like a homeschool curriculum and support system for gifted. And it also has a very unusual boarding school option that involves taking small groups of students on a kind of educational road trip. There will be a curriculum, but the effort is primarily project-based, tailored to the interests of each student. The founders call it Unschooling on Rails. It's called the Collins Institute for the Gifted, and it is just about to publicly launch. Its leaders hope to run a very small pilot program in the fall. And to be clear, this is actually just for middle and high school years. The program is founded by a couple with their own unusual stories about their educational journey. When I heard about this unusual new gifted program, I was super curious to find out more about how it might work and how it plays into bigger debates about education reform. So for today's podcast, I talk with one of the program's co-founders, Simone Collins. Her resume includes running a secret society for the controversial tech billionaire Peter Thiel. She has also written a series of how-to books on life skills, including one called The Pragmatist's Guide to Relationships, Ruthlessly Optimized Strategies for Dating, Sex, and Marriage. So it's a pretty unusual path to running an education startup. There's a lot of attention these days to whether gifted and talented programs at public schools are equitable, which is a question we explored in an episode of our Bootstraps podcast series a few months ago. And so I definitely went in wanting to know how this new effort fits into that conversation on equity. And stay tuned through the whole episode, because I bring in another voice later in the show, a longtime expert in gifted and talented, to help us put this new model into context. I started by asking Simone Collins how her program defines gifted students. Gifted to us is totally defined by I will and not IQ. So I know many people look at, you know, structured tests to determine whether or not someone is gifted. What we instead look at in the way that, for example, we do admissions for this school is we have a student propose a project and we admit them to the school, depending on the, given their resources and time and current level, the ambition of the project, but then also their ability to complete it which is really important. And we, we believe that that's the sign of, of brilliance and agency in the modern world is the ability to say, I'm going to do this, commit to it, complete it, and be willing to take some ambitious risks in life. And so you'll have an admissions criteria, but it doesn't just require, an. it's not just looking at some IQ test. 
No, no. In fact, there's there's zero grades, tests, or any other component to this. We're we're judging students based entirely on their ability to um, propose compelling projects. So we we really don't we don't run on those assessments. However, we do incorporate into our curriculum traditional graded multiple choice tests because as many of you found with unschooling. If you only do unschooling and you don't incorporate those things and yet you want to then opt into the university system someday, you're slapped with major test anxiety, you don't know what to do. So we do acknowledge that there is a place in an education for those things. We just don't make it part of our learning. We make it part of our fitting in with an existing system curriculum, if you know what I mean. Hmm. Oh, it's interesting. And so the 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 what you get if you enroll and get accepted as you start this you're getting going later this year is the plan right so it's a hybrid of part helping people homeschool part boarding school right so let's talk about each one if you could like so there's the homeschool the kind of home version of this where you don't come to any location what is that and how does it work to be if you apply and get into the collins um, Institute for the Gifted as a, a homeschool person? Yeah, that's a great question. So there, there are two parts to it. And these are the parts that we think are really important as part of education. So one is sort of the curriculum-based guidance, which is here are the skills that you need to thrive in the world. And it's not just things like algebra or physics, but also sales and, you know, how to organize groups, public speaking, you know, really important soft skills, financial management. Um, and that is, like I described earlier, a set of skills, and here's how you prove you have that skill. And we'll also go back and retest things later. That's one component, and typically people access the, the information about sort of next levels and skills they need to prove they have those, those, they can make it to the next level by viewing an app or the desktop app or the website. It's sort of a web or computer-based or phone-based thing. Um, then the other element essentially is, is of the network, the, the personal aspect of this school, which we think is way underrated when it comes to kids' education. I mean, in the end, most people are successful, break out successful, because they know the right people. And one core element of this is that we want to democratize that kind of success. So rather than being born into a privileged family where... Of course, I'm going to become, you know, a hedge fund manager or an astronaut or a famous physicist because I have friends, parents who do that, because my parents do that. We want kids from all backgrounds to have known those people, worked with those people and normalized those as their careers within reach. Um, so that is the other component of this, where through a network of tutors, mentors, and then also a proctor, which is sort of like the equivalent of a, a student's homeroom teacher. Students get access to a, a realm of people that will help to open their eyes to much more ambitious careers and lifestyle possibilities. So you'll create this network and a proctor homeroom teacher for them virtually that they can connect with. Yeah. So there's a couple different ways they connect with these people. They meet with their proctor every week and their proctor's primary goal is their emotional and, and social development. And then, of course, they also keep track of academics, but it's really important that students in this program are in constantly being engaged on how are you making friends? Are you organizing local groups? How are you doing mentally? I feel like mental health is a huge crisis in students. It's not getting a lot of support right now. Um, the, the mentors are the people to whom students start pitching projects and collaboration once they get very advanced in a field. And then tutors are specialists in various different fields that students can book to work through 
some of these skills that they need to develop if talking with a person is what they need. Because every student's different. Some just want to go out and like, you know, experiment with things or, or go out and see how the world works and then kind of learn skills that way. Other students want to read a book or watch a YouTube series or a lecture series or a podcast. Um, and then some want to work with a real person. And that's what the tutors are for. And then what about the boarding component? Yeah, we're really excited about this part. The, the boarding component is to a great extent inspired by the grand tour that at least privileged um, people being educated in the past used to take to kind of get to learn about the world. So the way that our boarding component works is it involves traveling cohorts of students. So small groups who are spending a month in rural Ohio, and then a month in Portugal, and then a month in Costa Rica, and then a month in Thailand, or two months. It's, it, the, the times vary, but the idea is that they can get embedded in these cultures. And we actually found when you do the numbers, it costs the same, possibly even a little bit less as having a fixed location with all the water bills and the insurance and everything else, while giving students a real chance to get to become citizens of the world. What makes us most excited about this program is that it's dynamic. It's seamless with the rest of the curriculum. So it's not like you're on a different educational program or dealing with different tutors and mentors if you're on the road or not. Um, meaning that you can spend two weeks on that. You can spend the entire year on that. Uh, and this enables students from many different types of backgrounds to engage in the boarding model and see more of the world and leave their home community, even if maybe it's not possible for them to be away from home all the time. And it's really important for at least what we're seeing among the families that are working with us. They want that flexibility. Hmm. So it's a modular program that you could come in and out of the boarding part of it. Exactly. Yeah. You can treat it almost like... Um, a day camp or if parents are traveling for business for a month, great. You know, the kids can, you know, travel with other students or if they really just need to be away from home, they can spend much more time in the boarding component. How, you know, the scale of something like that seems complicated to, to manage. How large do you plan to start out? Yeah. So because education is such a delicate thing, right? You, you can't, Take, you can't give back years to a student that they lose if you kind of screw up their education. We're starting with a pilot program that is extremely small. So this year, we're trying to cap the number of students that we admit to eight students um, who already have a lot of support at home. For the boarding option. Eight for the virtual. The boarding will start the following year because we really want to get the, the base curriculum right the first time. But this from the get-go has been about providing a viable alternative to all public school in the U.S. and eventually international. Um, and we're already in talks with state legislators about doing this. So the end game is for us to be providing an alternative to self-driven, self-motivated students to every public school who want to have an option to pursue a very different type of curriculum that's less structured, that enables them to have more freedom, that can accelerate their learning in different domains and introduce them to all sorts of professional opportunities really early in life. Um, our philosophy around this is that education that really scales is more of a trickle down thing than a trickle up thing. Um, there have already been so many districts that have been exposed to really innovative and amazing education models that don't ultimately scale because the bugs kind of get caught in, in the bottom of the system, subjecting a lot of students who are going to like charter schools that are not paid for to a lot of mistakes, things don't go right. And then they don't really scale after that, where if we were able to start with something that's very small, very prestigious, prove it out, it enables us to one experiment on students who um, are not as likely to get really hurt if we come 
across some bumps in the road, but also it's much easier to sell this model to state legislators, to parents, to school districts after it's been proven, after it's been shown as basically being a new model that mints the next generation of world leaders because it's safe and it's respected. So we, we really want to get it right privately and on a smaller scale before we bring it to the public school system, which really deserves the best of the best from day one. And your goal is to make it, so pitch it as part of, that lawmakers would adopt as an option for public school system. Yeah, most likely is like a form of charter school that collaborates with local um, local groups that might execute it. For example, like there may be groups that want to execute it in a center where there are you know students coming together. There may be groups that want to execute it more like a homeschooling alternative. We're speaking with a bunch of different people who want to look at it different ways, and we're willing to try them out. But again, we want to get it right first. The who's designing the curriculum, and then is there an active teacher besides the proctor? No, there's no active teacher. So when a student is trying to get human guidance in a domain, we connect them with a domain expert tutor. So they can book a time, like they can just on their own, find a time, book a time with this person and have a live synchronous talk with them where they work through whatever the problem is. The curriculum, like the skill sets that we're establishing is, you know, here's how to prove you've mastered this. We're working with domain experts in each realm. So we're not working with any centralized body because we want to make sure that we're going to the experts on actually getting the practical skills that are needed for each individual domain that we're covering. After the break, how working to run a secret society for Peter Thiel shaped her view on education. Stay with us. When it comes to your classroom and school communities, are you combining academic goals with a mindset for social and emotional learning? Educators can use Hapara Highlights and Hapara Filter as social and emotional coaching tools. Highlights is a Chrome monitoring tool that develops digital citizenship. With Highlights, a teacher can see what students are browsing and guide them if an open tab isn't learning focused. The teacher then can send a Highlights direct message that asks the student to be part of the conversation and decision-making process about their own browsing. Teachers can also curate websites for students and gradually give them more browsing independence to help them learn how to self-manage. Hapara Filter is a K-12 web filter powered by AI that helps students practice responsible decision-making in a supportive climate. Within the filter, they can ask their teacher for approval to use a website for learning in the moment. It also keeps students safe by blurring inappropriate images, text, and video, and alerting educators to signs of cyberbullying and self-harm. To learn more, visit hapara.com sel. That's hapara.com slash S-E-L. Now back to the episode. So let's talk. So this is fascinating. We can dig into more of the details and people can go to your website and see a lot of this there. But what about, you know, what problem are you trying to solve? Like, let's go back to, you know, by creating a new model, the assumption is like something is broken in your view. But what is it? What is the primary um, fault, as you see it, in the, the traditional education system for, for this age student? Yeah, we see the primary fault as being that the traditional education system really came to be invented around the height of the British Imperial Empire during the Industrial Revolution, where it was really important to to have outputs of the education assist, educational system that had uniform skills that could be switched out from each other in, across either the British Imperial Empire or then eventually corporate 
entities where what really mattered was uniform skills and that people sort of were able to do the same thing. So schools really shored up weaknesses and didn't necessarily focus on cultivating really high levels of skill to ensure that people could exist in that world. We don't have that same kind of, you know, there are no more, for the most part, lifelong corporate jobs. Right now to succeed in the job market, you have to have typically pretty lumpy skills and a lot of flexibility in initiative and drive. And so as we see it, the education system is basically creating a type of person, a type of professional who is completely not set up to thrive in modern society. They're not, they're not set up to find jobs. They're not even set up to make their own social networks after they graduate from college. Um, they're not, they're not emotionally prepared for, you know, all sorts of things. I mean, there, there are reasons why we're seeing huge mental health crises, huge addiction crises. And we feel like the education system, there's no malicious action here. It's just not, it's not, it's not creating people for the modern society. It's creating people for a society that stopped really existing 30 to 50 years ago. So I mentioned before that Simone Collins has an unusual resume. That includes running a secret society for Peter Thiel. It's called Dialogue, and honestly, it's hard to find much about it online. She referred to it as an invite-only private society, and it apparently organizes retreats for high-power leaders in various fields for the purpose of springboarding innovation. I asked whether that shaped her new effort. Oh my gosh, this was crucial. Um, so seeing seeing how... The leaders of the world, you know, because Dialogue is, is a society that is, it is one of the most selective private societies that exists, uh, meaning that, you know, many people who get invited to maybe just one retreat or set of conversations don't get invited back um, just because you have to be one of the leaders in whatever your domain is to be even considered. You know, it really enables you to get to know the best of the best and see who they are, how they work and how they got to where they are. And that kind of exposure really enabled us to see the pathway to becoming a world leader in this age, which is so different from what it was maybe even 30, 20 years ago. So a lot of that, you know, was just realizing, oh my gosh, this is the pathway to become a world leader. Oh my gosh, our school system doesn't do any of that. Oh my gosh, how can we create this in a, in a widely accessible way to create more fluidity uh, between many different income levels and backgrounds. Now, one of the things that that this model strikes me as uh, I understand that you're you're talking about uh, talking about diversity and getting people networks that haven't had them in their home environment. And yet, it seems like this for for someone to participate in this, it seems like they need to have a pretty um if, either if they go the virtual or the the homeschool or the boarding they need to have a home environment that that's prepared them for it. And so in a way, it seems like it seems like this will self-select for people that are pretty uh, well-resourced um, because to get to the point to be ready for this self-directed, is that fair? I mean, it, that it, 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 it probably will end up skewing toward pretty well-resourced families that have a lot of stability and, and support. At first, especially yes. Uh, in the future, when we start rolling out to the public school system, we're hoping to get to a point where we can collaborate with organizations and execute this through organizations that provide some of that stability that may not exist within the household, within the community. Like imagine this program being executed in a community center that, like many public schools, also provides meals, has people on site to provide more guidance and more structure. There are ways for us to address this, but 
without a lot more funding and a lot more proof points, we're not able to reach that audience. But And we've noticed, especially this became really clear in the pandemic, that public schools really provide two services. And many parents were actually more concerned about one service than the other. So there's education. You know, how do you create a person who will thrive in the world after they become an adult or graduate from the system? But then also... Who's going to watch my kids while I'm at work? Who's going to make sure they don't run into traffic and kill themselves? Who's going to feed them? And when the pandemic hit, that was one of the biggest concerns. It's like, hold on, the public school system is a distributor of many meals to kids. And certainly in the beginning, especially, our school can't pretend to solve that problem. We're not a food services distribution company. We're not you know, going to provide shelter to students. We can't. That's not a problem that we're equipped to, to solve. But we're very aware of the role it plays and the role that things like food security and a safe household play in things like personal self-control, ability to take initiative, ability to be creative. I mean, if those things aren't taken care of, yeah, you're not even going to be able to think about even applying to our school. Like the idea of pitching a project uh, that's ambitious when you're in like an abusive household and you're worried about your food, that's not possible. We think that's you know highly disturbing and unfair, and we're very, very keen to start resolving those problems. We like our dynamic boarding school option because even if kids feel like they need to be home to support siblings or protect their family for some of their time, they can still get out of that community for even a little bit of the year and see other ways of living in the world. But again, we can't really get to that stage until we've proven ourselves in a more unfortunately privileged environment. Sure. And then... The other, you know, the other thing that strikes me is there is a, um, there's a lot of debate about gifted and talented in the public system. And um, we've covered this a little bit, but the, there's one idea of it is, or one counter narrative that I'm hearing a lot about these days is that, you know, the problem, one issue is that it it ends up having a system at many public schools where the people who get into it end up getting a better education and they're, um, they're getting, you know, like a better teacher student ratio. And, and, and so it's almost, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy of once you get into this, this system? And the other question is, you know, so that the response has been this idea of gifted for all, or how do we make change the narrative so that it's more of a attempt to draw out the best in all of students, instead of just have this pick some students who get a really good education and the rest are kind of thrown into something that's lackluster. Um, this this feels like something that maybe f- falls into the old model a little bit of like, well, these students are going to get something special, but then what about the rest? Uh, what do you? How do you? How do you feel about that larger debate? And 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 maybe what would your response be to somebody who says like, well, actually, going down this road is going to further this idea of like, well, certain people are going to get a, a kind of an extra leg up, and then other people are just going to get left behind. I'm very passionate about that subject. Both Malcolm and I, our co-founder, are very passionate about it. And we actually view, as many people who join your podcast view it, is, is that everyone needs a slightly different type of education. And I would say many kids who qualify for gifted education in traditional systems, as, as people typically define it, wouldn't qualify for our program. And many people who qualify for our program wouldn't qualify for gifted education because they wouldn't score that high on traditional IQ tests. So we're catering to a certain type of gifted, and we think it's still really important that there are other programs that cater to different types. Um, we, we very much believe that 
neurodiversity is a very important factor in education, um, that our school caters to that, but it doesn't solve the problem for every personality. And there are many people who will not thrive in our school and we're just not the solution for them. There are other great solutions for them. We're just trying to solve for one part of the sort of pie of overall students. We also see gifted education as to a great extent, another form of special education. When you look at a lot of gifted research, you'll see that if not really given the right kinds of resources, many gifted students end up performing much worse, dropping out of high school at higher rates than like your typical, like normal range within the bell curve student. Um, in many cases, because they're not engaged enough or they're just, you know, maybe a little bit more neurodiverse. So as much as people are saying, let's snuff out gifted education, it's almost like saying, well, let's snuff out this one part of the, the pie chart of special education, um, which is going to have pretty serious results. So to sum it up, we're, we're really only addressing the, the problem for some students. We're going to be a great match for some, not for others. And we think that there are really great options for other students. And we're happy to see a broad range of different solutions being proposed because you need a lot of different solutions. Everyone's different. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really interesting. So you're not saying that the public system is broken and this is the system that will work for everybody. No, this this system will work maybe for for 20% or fewer students, but this will work significantly better for them. So how unusual is this program? And how does it fit into broader debates about reforming gifted education? To get a better sense of that, I felt I needed to bring in an expert who's steeped in the field. So I called up Jonathan Plucker, a professor of talent development at Johns Hopkins University's School of Education. He is the past president of the National Association for Gifted Children. I shared with him this group's website and the content of my interview with Simone to get his response. It's reasonable, decently research supported, probably not as cutting edge as they make it seem. Um, I mean, but there's, you know, there's always that innovator's bias, right? So I would never hold that against someone. Like they, they are trying something different. Um, people have tried to do it within public schools before, outside of public schools before. Um, essentially much more of an interest-based um, approach, uh, also pro uh, very, very project-based to advanced education. Mm -hmm. And so like, this isn't coming out of left field. It's an interesting idea. They're taking things that others have tried and they've repackaged them a little bit. There's a little bit more flexibility. Um, and I think for certain types of students, um, it's probably a very interesting option. Um, uh, and I think there's definitely, you know, go, to go back to your question, Jeff, about like, is this a solution for a problem that people are trying to solve? I think for a small group of parents and students who are very frustrated with the way that um, American K-12 education moving into higher ed um, is structured. The fact that it hasn't changed that much in generations, really. Um, it is so slow to respond to the fact that the workplace is so different now from what it, from what it used to be. Um, this sort of an approach probably does solve problems that 
that group sees? Does it solve problems that um, like someone in a K-12 school would see? Probably not. Um, I think it's really interesting um, that they are um, exploring those linkages. Cool, right? Yeah, that's um, I, I just, um, boy, it's kind of hard to see how it would fit um, in such a radical reimagining of, of what, of what advanced learning means. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in, in, I have to tell you, it, uh, it feels more like a creativity development program to me than an advanced learning program. And that I think lots of pro long-term creativity principles mm-hmm. are sort of at the foundation of this which I think does make it a little bit different and fairly clever. So it would be, it, it, it'll, it'll be fun to see where they can take it. It's definitely something that's only going to work for certain groups of students. They say very clearly on their site, you can't go to a regular school and do this um, curriculum. So the, is there a chance, is there a little bit of a worry that they will be so much on the project that they'll miss other parts of general education that students really should have, even if they're very gifted? I mean, yes. And this is a philosophical debate. Um, I have a pretty good sense of where I think they fall on this, but here's my concern. We know that people switch jobs and switch careers a lot. We know that people who are coming through our schools today probably are going to do it even more than we did it. Yeah. Um, And uh, that's not a good or bad thing. It's just a thing. Um, And, you know, I know from my own children, um, I have one who is just a fantastic humanist, just anything in the humanities. She's like a vacuum. She just soaks it all up. She can use it creatively. It's so impressive. You know what? She was a fantastic STEM student. Um, and we know that because in high school, she still had to take those classes and she still had to build up those skills. And I think one day, if she decides to go more in that direction, she's going to be really glad that she had a solid foundation there, that if it were her own choice, she never would have pursued. And so um, I I hesitate to even say that just because it sounds like I'm saying we should protect kids from themselves. But you know what? That is our job. We have wisdom that they don't have. Um, And if they're only pursuing their passion projects, they're going to get so deep, it's going to blow people away. But what are we doing to make sure that they do have those other 21st century skills that would re that, that they will almost certainly benefit for moving forward? For Simone Collins, this effort to start a new school for the gifted is also personal. She says she thinks the model will work for a variety of students, but might work particularly well for those on the autism spectrum or who are otherwise neurodiverse. And she is sharing her own personal story with autism 
as she makes that case. Yeah, I was actually only recently diagnosed as autistic. So I went through the entire public school system and the university system all the way through um, a master's degree not being diagnosed. Um, I mean, I was diagnosed with other things. Um, and I think that's because especially girls are better at masking. And so it's much easier to view um, their autistic tendencies as other things. Um, because they're really good at kind of mirroring other people's behaviors and looking non-autistic. Um, I only found out I was autistic after our son was diagnosed. And I was like, wait, I do all these things too. And they're like, hmm, get that checked. And then lo and behold. So the interesting for, thing for me is, is on paper, if we were to look at me like in, in scientific research or like, you know, I'm a case, I'm clearly someone then for, for whom the public school system and traditional education was perfect. I was salutatorian of high school. I was valedictorian of my, my college class. I went on to get a graduate degree at Cambridge. I had really good grades. I started clubs. I was president, like, you know, sports record, varsity, all of that. I also was extremely depressed throughout high school. I also became so anorexic that now I have osteoporosis and almost permanent infertility. Um, so like, I, I mean, like I, I severely damaged my body because I was so stressed out by this system. It really didn't work for me. And yes, I could mask and yes, I could make it work, but at a very steep cost. So I know that, you know, there are many people in the education system who even look like they're thriving and aren't because it's just not quite the right style for them. Mm. No, I appreciate you sharing your story. And that, that's uh that sounds like quite an experience. And so the uh, hope then is that by having these alternatives, this will work better for, for students. For some students and not for all. Right, right. And can you, uh, if you don't mind, like what is an example of how this model might have worked for you when the traditional system didn't? Yeah, it, it, it was, was it was very emotionally taxing for me, and I had many, many mental health problems in school and was severely depressed. So yeah, I mean, a system like this would have worked better for someone like me um, because, I mean, this isn't a school for autistic people, um, but many autistic people have a lot of sensitivities and and needs that that when put in a school environment, just they can't be met. Um, and in many cases, allowing an autistic person to kind of set their own standards um, really gives them the freedom to live in a, a, a world with a lot less stress and, and a lot more control over their lives. Plus, it also allows them to dig in to areas that they really love and thrive in and go so far with them. Because instead of spending all their time just trying to adapt to a system that doesn't give them the kind of structure or control that they feel like they need to be comfortable. They can instead, you know, do well in a lot of realms, but also like really, really, really advance in something. And, and we hope to help them leverage their various superpowers or interests to really excel and become well before they graduate a real world player in their domains. Now, the, co the cost of the program on your website is pretty interesting because there's a price tag, but then there's also a sense that there's scholarships. But it's, it's how much does it cost to go to your program um, in, either, in either format? So, I mean, for our first class, we're hoping to get enough in fundraising to charge people absolutely nothing. Um, so it's hard for us to say if there's an exact cost. If not, we're going to try to charge people a little bit less than average of equivalent remote programs. So 
to be honest, because we're trying to make this as, as free for people as possible. Also, because we know, like you said earlier, this is going to start off with fairly privileged families. But if we can actually bring in people who don't have a super privileged background, all the better. So the less we charge, the better. Um, so yeah, we our, our goal is to be as low cost or free as possible. And a lot of that depends on our ability to get good fundraising um, and develop a sustainable program. And where are you in the fundraising now? I see that there's a for-profit uh, arm to run some of the, the programs, like the boarding program, and then there's a non-profit arm for some of the educational offerings. Um, and so you're, it seems like you're raising both venture capital and um, philanthropy. How is that going so far? Um, for venture capital, we're not going to try to raise anything until we have a better proof of concept um, for the for-profit element. But we have that because it enables us, it gives us a whole new channel to raise more money and to get more resources for students. So the, the more we can get for our students, the better. We'll be flexible in how we do that. Um, for nonprofit fundraising, we're in fairly advanced talks with a few larger donors. Um, and we've already secured seed funding through contracting our organization's work out to a new initiative of Schmidt Futures. So um, just as we're doing matchmaking between exceptional students and top professionals for our for our school, Schmidt Futures has contracted to help matchmake exceptional mid to late career professionals with other leaders in the field to help expand their mission driven impact. So we've been able to already start using our school's methods to raise money for the school just by kind of farming them out ahead of the school's official pilot launch. All right. Well, I do hope we talk again, and it's been a pleasure to meet you today. Thank you for the amazing work you do. I've learned so much from your podcast, and I can't wait to listen to even more as they come out. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we dig into unusual approaches and big questions about education. If you like the show, please take a minute to leave us a rating or review, or share it with a friend on social media. And make sure to sign up for the Ed Surge Podcast newsletter to keep up with what we are up to, and to get show notes for each episode. You can find that newsletter at edsurge.com and click on the word newsletter at the top right. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at jryoung. Music this episode by Mon Placier. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.